Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Joey Lovato, the producer and editor of Indie Matters. This week is a little different than most. It's our 100th episode of the podcast. I'm going to make this intro short because this episode is going to be long, but to celebrate, we're going to answer your questions that you've sent in over the past couple weeks. This episode is broken up into two parts. The first half was recorded in Vegas and is starring editor John Ralston and reporters Jackie Valley and Jacob Solis. In the second half, you'll hear from myself as well as Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, and Daniel Rothberg. To bridge the gap between the two segments, you'll also hear from reporter Megan Messerly, who couldn't make it but called in from her vacation just to be on this very special episode of Indie Matters. Make sure to subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into it. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan journalism, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships for the podcast and events. This sponsor has no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is brought to you by the Nevada Mining Association. Welcome to the Indie Matters podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We're an independent website at thenevadaindependent.com. We cover politics, government, education, and a whole host of things. And we've been around for two and a half years, and this is a big day for us. We are recording our, wait for it, 100th podcast. You can find us all over the place on iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play, and all kinds of other places that our fantastic producer Joey Lovato has put us. So what we're going to do for this 100th uh, uh, anniversary, 100th podcast anniversary, I guess we'll call it, is we're going to gather reporters north and south. We're the southern one. We're here uh, on on the campus of UNLV, and I'm here uh, with two of my reporters. We're going to answer some questions that have been submitted uh, over social media. At least we're going to try uh, to answer some uh, questions. I'll let my reporters, uh, in case you don't know them, introduce themselves and say what they do. And I'll, we'll start with Jackie. Hi, I'm Jackie Valley. I primarily cover education. A lot of that is the Clark County School District. Um, but as of late, I've also been covering a lot of the 2020 presidential candidate visits down here in Las Vegas. And I'm Jacob Solis. Uh, I'm new addition to the team, but in the in the last year, I have been covering a lot of uh, campaign finance, um, and also have been taking a look at the 2020 election for president. And we're thrilled to have you on as as a full timer now, uh, Jacob. Uh, after working for us on on a freelance basis, uh, and and Jackie, of course, has been with us uh, from the very beginning, uh, and is author of uh, an award winning series you may have seen called Stars and Struggles. So. Where do you think we should start, you guys? Uh, Jackie, do you want to start with this education question? What do you think? Sure, I can tackle that one. All right, here's one we got. Uh, and, and as you know, the legislature just ended a little while ago. Uh, the Clark County Education Association has been threatening to strike uh, if, 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 if there were any cuts in the classroom. The superintendent just announced moving some deans uh, out, 170 or so. Is that right, Jackie? Correct. So here was the question. Do you know if the governor is prepared to call back the state legislature for an emergency session if the school district teachers go on strike? And I'll just put the background they had in so you don't have to. 78% of the union's membership voted in favor of a strike last May if the state failed to adequately fund our schools. Since now we're going into the 2019-20 school year, yet another budget deficit. Superintendent has taken the unprecedented step of laying off all those deans. As I said, what's going to happen, Jackie? So it all depends on 
sort of what the courts do with SB 551. Uh, Dr. Jara, superintendent of the Clark County School District, had said a week or so ago that, you know, as of right now, we got enough money to fund the raises, um, but he needs that money in the bank before he can do so. And so there's obviously some question, especially from Republicans, about whether that extension of the tax can go forward with the simple majority instead of the two-thirds majority. Well, let's just, let me just stop you for a second because some people might not know. SB 551 is a bill that had a lot of different things in it, including this question about extending a rate on the payroll tax. The Democrats got an opinion that said they didn't need two-thirds, uh, which, which allowed them to pass it without getting one Republican vote. And so they did that. And now, as you mentioned, that could go to that. There hasn't been a lawsuit filed. The Republicans have threatened to, but that could put the the, the funding package at risk. Right. So that could put it in jeopardy if there is a, a lawsuit and the courts agree with the Republican side. Um, and so actually last Wednesday in this very building, there was an education town hall. It was a jam-packed room upstairs in the auditorium. And that very question came up. And uh, Senator Joyce Woodhouse addressed it by saying, well, I think if the courts react negatively and, uh, you know, we essentially lose that battle, that she thinks that that would cause Governor Steve Sislak to call a special session. Um, and so it's kind of a waiting game at this point. Meanwhile, another panelist that night, John Ballardita, who's the executive director of the Clark County Education Association, he said he heard a little different take on that and that if the courts uh, rule against it, that possibly it could go to the Board of Examiners who could then appeal to uh, the Interim Finance Commission and so on and so forth to pull that money from the rainy day fund. Um, but there was a little bit of a back and forth between Senator Woodhouse because she was like, well, that's maybe a possibility. But anytime we do pull from the rainy day fund, that'll cause a whole host of other complications. So it seemed like the bottom line was there could be a special session if that money gets hijacked. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that out of the question at all that there would be a special session. It seems very unlikely that they would try to cut that $100 million or so from from the, the extension uh, out out of the budget. Now, I, I'm not sure what uh, John Velardit is talking about. I've never heard of it being able to go to the state board of examiners, which is, which is a board, in case people listening don't know, that essentially approves contracts. That's essentially what it does with the state. And, and w- w- whether or not they could take the money from the rainy day fund, that w- they would have to pass a bill uh, to do that, which would cause a, a, a special session. But what, 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 what about the, the, the strike threat, though, uh, Jackie? Do, do you, there, there are a lot of people who talk about John Velardita as kind of having a, a gun-to-the-head negotiating style. Uh, there's a lot of people who have very strong feelings about him. There are a lot of people who think that he's just posturing on this. On the other hand... He kind of got his way so far, didn't he? He appears he did. Uh, You know, I think what you saw last week with the decision to cut the deans was more or less um, an appeasement for the union because they said, you know, not one cut in classroom. And I actually asked John Valerdita what he meant by, you know, what constitutes a cut to the classroom. And he kind of, he gave a few examples, but was basically said, you know, we'll kind of have to wait and see what the cuts are to determine whether they were affecting the classroom. Um, But interestingly, as soon as Dr. Jar announced the cutting of the deans, and just as background, it's 170 deans at middle and high schools. Um, Those are the people that handle everything from bullying investigations and discipline issues, attendance, uh, things like that. The Clark County Education Association came out 
in support of it and said this was, considering the circumstances, a, a decent decision. It'll put more teachers back in the pipeline to help with the shortage. But interestingly, they were among the only people who did voice support for that move because it just really irked a lot of other people, including principals, teachers, parents, et cetera. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move on to Jacob in just a second, but since, since we're kind of showcasing on the 100th uh, podcast uh, how great you, you guys are as reporters, and Jackie, nobody knows more about education than you do, let me just ask you one thing. Back in the era of uh, black and white TV, when I went to high school and, and, and middle school, and I went to a public high, high school and middle school. I don't think we had deans. I think some people might think, so what? We, we, don't, we don't really need these. Uh, do they do a lot at these schools? What I've heard is it depends on the school and how they're utilized. Um, so I think some deans are like very active. And if you think about it, um, especially maybe at the middle school level where there aren't as many assistant principals, they're filling kind of a critical role. Um, you know, middle schools here are larger than other parts of the country. So they can have like 1,400, 1,500 students. And so I think in that sense, they are serving this somewhat needed role at very select schools. It's also an entry-level administrator position. Um, so they're not paid as much as assistant principals, but they're paid a little bit more than teachers and yet have some of these administrative capacities. So uh, let's let Jacob talk a little bit about uh, uh, some things, too. Jacob, um, you mentioned that you're a newcomer as a full-timer uh, to the Indy, and, and you you came here knowing that we were a nonprofit trying something new. This is, uh, uh, the, uh, I think it's the future of journalism. There, there have been some questions about our business model uh, and whether it's working and could the indie be a model for future journalism. As a young guy, you're, you're re, you haven't been out of college uh, that long. Did, did, did you see us as a, as a, as a future, as a, as a new model for journalism that was sustainable? I did personally. Right when I was graduating, and I see the indie, you know, I'm from Nevada. I was raised in Las Vegas. I went to school in Reno. The indie is a really interesting business model, and I think indicative of a future of journalism because it exists in a place that isn't the coasts, right? Because I think in California or New York, something like this is more doable because of the funding base. You know, there's lots of rich people in California, New York, and lots of media organizations already exist. So it's not easy, but at least easier to fund an organization that is nonprofit um, to have something like a ProPublica exist in the outlying areas. And ProPublica does great work. But having the indie itself is just, it, I mean, I don't want to, you know, pat you too hard on the back. No, please, keep going. <laughs> but uh, uh, but it's, it's great because, I mean, even in Nevada, I mean, it, you have both sides of the spectrum, I think, where the RGJ is owned by Gannett and Reno and Gannett obviously being the largest newspaper owner in the country. And now even with Gannett being in talks to be bought by Alden Global Capital, which is known for gutting newspapers, to Las Vegas, where the Review Journal was famously bought by Sheldon Adelson under less than transparent circumstances. So... The indie exists in such a unique place, and I think if it if it can be done here, it can be done anywhere. That's not to be that's not to say it will happen everywhere, but honestly, at a time when journalism is changing so much, it, it's it it could be a model that's transplanted elsewhere. I, I don't want to talk too much about the indie here, but since this is uh, the hundredth podcast and we're kind of celebrating a little bit and because a lot of the questions I think people you know have questions about what we we are doing uh, and there were a lot of questions on here let me just read a few of them being a nonprofit news organ in an environment where clickbaity is clickbaity a word I never <laughs> articles often generate the most buzz how do you determine what is substantial news in a more sparsely populated state like Nevada 
and, and I think one of the things that appealed to you, uh, Jackie, coming to a place like this is that um, you could write longer pieces. You could, you could. I, I don't know if if the Sun, where you used to work, would have let you embed at a school for six months. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. You did some great work at at the Sun, but the the appeal of doing something different, I think, is what brought part of what brought you here. Correct? Yeah, and I, I knew that the focus would be on. Uh, telling the stories that really matter, not just looking at the the clicks or the clickbait stories that determine our coverage. And so that's the thing I appreciate most about the indie is that even if it's we're not writing three thousand word stories, like even if it's just like a five hundred word story, it's still something that we deem of value for our readers, um, not just something that's going to drive a lot of traffic to our site. So we're very uh, judicious about you know what we cover and why. And, and that is very true. And let me just answer a couple of these other questions. Uh, how's your funding situation? Is your funding model sustainable? Should other reporters be looking to this model as the future of journalism? I think some, let me answer the last one first. I think some reporters are. You had the former political reporter for, for the Review Journal go and start a nonprofit up in uh, uh, her hometown of San Jose. In fact, I just saw her uh, and her husband. They started at a conference down in Houston. By the way, this conference of, uh, of, of nonprofit news Two years ago, they had 60 people show up. This year, they had 220. So two years later, the, the, this this kind of approach, I think, uh, is catching on. How's our funding situation? It's okay, but we're not sustainable yet. I, I'm hoping, uh, this may be news to Jacob and Jackie, what I'm about to say, by the way, I'm hoping that I can wake up and not worry about paying their salaries probably uh, within six months to a year. I think we're going to be sustainable, but it's hard. It's hard. I heard Jacob say the word "easy," and I, I just was—I—I I, I didn't know what he was talking Not about. Easy on the coast. It's <laughs> yeah, Not that's easy right. here. That's right. Exactly. Are we hiring? Not right now. So don't don't send us any more resumes. Uh, we have three great summer interns, uh, and 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 the staff is full. We just hired Jacob a little a while ago. Which way does the publication lean? We lean neither way. Uh, we don't have an, we don't write editorials, uh, and I, I think I'm very proud, and I think everybody at the organization is proud that our stories we try to be as fair as we possibly can be. We're transparent about who funds the site. Every donor is disclosed from five dollars all the way up into our major corporate uh, sponsors. So, could the indie be a model for the future of journalism? I have to tell you guys, I really think it is. I think unless your best friend is a billionaire. Um, uh, that 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 really the way that we are doing this, considering the problems uh, elsewhere, you talk about you know Gannett and and I don't wish any news organization ill, and I, I I either here or elsewhere, but it's getting more and more difficult. I think I was right in the gamble that I took that there's a yearning out there for the kinds of stories that we're allowing our reporters to do. What are their uh, longer daily stories or, or or setting Jackie free to do the kind of series uh, that she did? So. Uh, I am uh, actually very hopeful about about the future of journalism with this model. All right, let me take a look at some of these uh, other questions. I'm wondering, there's a couple questions here, as I mentioned, about the Democratic caucus. So I guess since I still occasionally cover politics, maybe I should take this on. Can you explain how the Democratic caucus will work? Is it an online caucus? I was incredibly frustrated by the process last time. Friends and family ended up leaving because of long lines and waits or confusion on where to go. Do you anticipate to get better or in somewhat different 
different access than mainstream publications, RJ, RGJ, et cetera, to Democrat candidates in the lead up to the, the Nevada caucus. Let me just answer those real quickly, guys. Uh, the caucuses, they have changed it. There is going to be part of it is going to be what they're calling a virtual caucus or an online caucus. They have changed a lot of the procedures to try to streamline it. You can go on the Nevada Democratic Party website and there's a, de- a lot of details. We actually have posted the document probably on, on the Indy site as well, but it'll tell you exactly uh, how it's going to work. They're going to have early voting. They're going to have same day registration. So they're hoping that that's going to streamline it a bit. Are we going to get different access than mainstream publications? Let me just ask these to the candidates. Let me both ask, Jackie, how many Democratic candidates have you covered so far? Oh, my God. Uh, How many are there now? Yeah, right. I mean, you've you've covered a lot so far, right? So have you, Jacob. You've been to a few, right? Yeah, that's right. So we're bo- we're we're covering them. Uh, when they come to town, we are going to cover at least some of their events. And uh, I should remind people that we're also doing a forum with the presidential candidates. We're hoping to get as many as possible. It's on November 18th at the Smith Center in in downtown Las Vegas. But our commitment is as an organization to cover the presidential race here in 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 Nevada uh, like a blanket. Uh, Megan Messerly, who is now uh, uh, somewhere on a train vacationing, uh, is our lead 2020 reporter. She's embraced it. Uh, all of us here know that if Megan could cover every event at every hour of the day, she would, but but she can't. So the entire team will be doing that. So that's enough of of, of the political questions. So Jacob, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna there's there's one uh, category here called fun personal questions, <laughs> uh, and you know a little bit about Reno. Yeah, that's right. I lived in Reno for five years while okay. I was in college. So let's let's talk about this. What are the biggest differences you've observed between a national pop cultural perception of Reno and how the place actually is? How would you sell a trip to Reno to someone who doesn't know what it's like here? Oh, how would I sell Reno? Yeah. I would definitely sell Reno on its proximity to Lake Tahoe. <laughs> See, I mean, that's, that's selling the best Reno part. by using Tahoe. That's a very I, listen, I agree with you. Go on. But there's a lot of great things about Reno. It has great breweries, I'll say this. If there's one thing I miss about it, it's being able to go down to Imbibe and get just a great sour. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, there's a lot of culture sort of under the surface, and I think a lot of that has been nurtured carefully by the city over the last t- 10 years because they are they too are aware of the pop cultural image of Reno. But Reno 911, I'll say this, doesn't exist in a vacuum. <laughs> and also having lived in Reno, man, I, there are some things downtown Reno that just – but yeah, it's, it's like any other city. You know, Vegas has rough – patches that you just you wouldn't go to for fun the issue is that reno's rough patches are right in the middle of the fun stuff so it's like you don't think you, that's true in las vegas downtown oh have you been to downtown Las yeah vegas no or? i have been to downtown <laughs> no, that's not, i got yeah no actually i was just accosted yesterday in downtown that's yeah. so yeah i mean honestly reno's just like anywhere else 80 percent of the year is great weather and obviously if you love skiing then there is nowhere better to be than Reno in the winter because you can just pop on down to Mount Rose in 45 minutes. That's great skiing. But you don't miss Reno, do you? I do not miss Reno, no. <laughs> there, come, there comes the truth. Jackie, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't – you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you're that familiar with Reno. But you did go up there for a couple of days to do reporting on a housing story a, mm-hmm. a few months ago. What were your thoughts? You know, I – Maybe it's because I haven't spent as much time up there, but I have a pretty positive view of Reno. Um, I actually really like going to Fernley. It reminded me more of the small town atmosphere I grew up in in Ohio. And like you just don't get that in Las Vegas anywhere. Um, and it was very distinct. You know, there was a little strip of eateries and such. And 
you know, houses and schools kind of in little neighborhoods. And whereas Vegas, everything's just tightly packed and no sense of community center in terms of like a town square or anything like that. I'll say this of Reno. It's great because it takes 10 minutes to get anywhere, <laughs> uh, which is beautiful. In Vegas, half an hour minimum. You know, it's interesting. You guys mentioned what you just mentioned about Las Vegas and the town square, and, and, and this is it's different than Reno, too. I get calls from national political reporters. There are places like in Des Moines, Iowa, or Concord, New Hampshire, where the candidates always go. They're the central places. They're the, there's the famous diner or, or whatever it is. And they ask me, where in Vegas is that where they go? Mm-hmm. There is nowhere. There, I can't name a place. I said, the only place you know for sure the candidates are going to go here is the Culinary Union Hall, right? You know they're going to go there. But there was, used to be a place uh, not far from the Culinary Union called Papagars, which was this old-time breakfast eatery that all the political elite used to go to. But that place disappeared a long time ago. Uh, but there's no place like that in Vegas, right? Uh, you could name a few places probably in Reno, though. Yeah, I mean— it depends on the can the candidate and what kind of candidate they are. But yeah, I, I can think of a couple spots. You were going to say something, Jack? Well, lately there's been a lot of candidates going to Love Lady Brewing in Henderson. But I think maybe it's just a good partnership with the owners. Um, but I think my takeaway in Vegas is that there's a lot of like artificial town squares. I live not too far from the district at Green Valley Ranch. There's downtown Summerlin. So I feel like everyone knows that we might need a little bit more of that. But right. um, it has to be done through commercial purposes. Yeah, exactly right. All right, let me go through a few more of these questions. This question people want to know, when will the city of Las Vegas municipal elections go on the same cycle as other major elections? They're going to let one cycle pass and and then it's going to switch over, which is going to make uh, Carolyn Goodman uh, have even a longer term and may serve longer than Oscar Goodman. I'm sure Oscar's going to try to get that law changed in the next session. He'll be so mad about that. But you just covered those. Uh, We did a little bit on the muni elections, not much because we just don't have the resources. The turnout was abysmal. Yeah, I mean, it was very small. I think what Carolyn would get is, what, an extra 18 months in yeah, office, which exactly. is actually a pretty significant amount of time. It is indeed. And that also extends uh, terms for the recently elected folks as well, including Victoria Seaman and Olivia Diaz and Brian Knudsen. Yeah, exactly. Those are the three new members of the Las Vegas City Council. But the, the turnout, it, it barely gets into double digits if, if, if it does in, in some of these uh, uh, political subdivisions. It's never made any sense except for political consultants who need to make a living uh, in, in, in the off years. So uh, that was a good bill. So let's, uh, uh, l- l- let's wrap up with some of these uh, fun questions. Both of you have to answer this, uh, and you have to answer it truthfully, okay? You ready? I'll let you go first, uh, Jackie. Is John Ralston ever happy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I actually always tell people that um, in real life you have a teddy bear personality. Oh, my goodness. And that you have a very soft inner core. (laughs) Don't tell people. Jackie, you're ruining my image. Jacob, is John Ralston ever happy? Uh, yes. <laughs> See, now there's there's a there's a diplomatic uh, answer. Now, I I I don't I, I I don't know if we can answer this, but um, does Riley Snyder sleep? What's your take on that, guys? I've never seen him sleep, okay. so I'm gonna say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Riley is very much like the Energizer Bunny, so I'm not quite sure. He definitely doesn't sleep a whole lot during the legislative session. Uh, I I will say this about Riley. Uh, I don't think, and I have a sense of which of my staff members wake up the earliest and which uh, don't. Uh, I don't think Riley's the earliest riser of all all the staffers. Um, But I I will say this about every one of my reporters. I don't, I've never worked 
with a group of, of people who work harder than my reporters, whether it's five in the morning to eight at night or eight in the morning to midnight. And uh, I, because I think you guys really love uh, the, uh, what, what you do, and, I, and it makes me feel great as, as, as the boss of an organization like this. Here's a good one for you, Jackie. Do you follow any music scene here in Vegas? Well, I will be in about a week and a half because my hairstylist is in a band and has invited me and some of my friends to go see a show. I love that. Where, so, where is that going to be? Just at a local bar? Or? Yeah, I think so. I think her band is called the Mojave Sun. Mojave Sun. I like I it. I could be getting that wrong, but I will be going to show support. <laughs> All right. It sounds great. Remember that name. Jacob, you're relatively, you know, compared to Reno, is there a music scene here? There is, but I'm not hip enough to follow it. But I have friends who do, so I can't confirm that it exists. It does exist. Yeah, I, I, I used to work with a uh, um, uh, uh, my producer at my TV show. Her kid was in a band. I used to go see him, and they were they were pretty good. In fact, uh, 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 you know, it wasn't just one of her kids, and they were all pretty good musicians. But I, I do think there is a vibrant local music scene here, isn't there? Well, and we've also been the birthplace of some major bands like Imagine Dragons and The Killers. The Killers, yeah. The yeah. Killers, yeah. I can't believe you so, said Imagine exactly. Dragons before. Exactly. The <laughs> Imagine Dragons is my son's favorite band. He never stops talking about them. And I have to tell you, just to show how out of touch I am, I could not name one Imagine Dragons song. Can you guys? Oh, good. I don't know the touch. name of them, but oh, yeah, yeah, I hear like, them I on the radio every day. I can hear it in my head, but... All right. Um, a few more, uh, and, and, and then, then we will wrap it up. I'm not going to do any more questions about me because I don't want to hear the answers. Weirdest Nevada anything. Jackie, story, place, people. What's the weirdest thing? Well, I think about this because I'm coming up on my nine-year anniversary here, and I really wish I'd kept some sort of diary from when I first moved because it was such a culture shock. And one of the biggest things for me was the valet everywhere. Like, I don't know why you need valet at the mall, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. There's things like that that when I go back to Ohio, I have to, like, reacclimate myself to normal life. I don't think I can answer this question because I'm from here. I've lived here my whole life, and so everything is normal, and so I don't have that. Like, when I go somewhere, where I'm more annoyed that something isn't there. Like, like what? Oh, man, trying to find liquor somewhere, depending on what state you're in. My God, I just expect to walk in anywhere and be able to find a beer. But no, that's not the case. Yeah, you do get, you do get used to that around here, yeah, right? spoiled. I'll start with Jacob on this one. If you had to cover only one topic forever, what would it be? Forever? Oh, politics. Good answer. Jackie would not answer politics. I Jackie's grimacing, I should tell our, our listeners. And Jackie, even though she does not like politics, always does a great job covering it. Well, thank you. Um, one topic forever. One topic. Oh, gosh, that's hard because I like variety. I do like education a lot. But I mean, if I, gosh, I also like criminal justice stuff. So maybe a blend of people's stories about people on the fringes. That's what I really like writing about. So if I had to cover only one topic, what do you guys think it would be? This feels like a trap question. <laughs> I'll say sports. You know, I, I originally was going to be a sports writer, and it turns out that I ended up being a sports writer of sorts, right? The best, the best sport to cover of all. Okay, so this is a question that uh, Riley got put on there because of all his uh, saying that we should always ask about how dogs should wear pants questions of, of political candidates. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? And you got to explain why, Jackie. So wait, one duck? Horse-sized duck. Okay. A duck the size of a horse or a hundred duck-sized horses. I would go with the one horse-sized duck. Because? Because I just think ducks are friendly creatures. And one is less scary than a hundred miniature horses. So logical. And yet animal-friendly, too, using your animal-friendly. I love friendly. animals. Yeah, I know you do love animals. <laughs> Jacob? Well, that's 400 very tiny hooves that are trying to hit you. So I'm going to go with the duck-sized – or sorry, the horse-sized duck 
is the better option here. So you're just you're just going with with with, with how you're more likely to survive as opposed to as opposed to like the friendliness of a duck <laughs> as Jackie analyzed it. Is that correct? Right. If the duck and I were in a cage, yeah, I would prefer the duck over the many many horses. Okay. Last question, and I assure both of you that your answers to this will not affect your future employment with Dandy. Jackie, you can go first. <laughs> it's a statement, but you have to react to it. Ready? Somebody needs to tell John to lose the beard. Oh, really? Huh. Jackie you, seems to agree with this. You know, you would be unrecognizable. I disagree. Oh. Yeah, the beard is key to the brand. The beard is key to the brand. Okay. Sorry, Jackie, but Jacob is my favorite now. Uh, anyhow, I appreciate Jackie, Jacob and uh, Jackie uh, um, uh, not just coming on the podcast, but uh, I'm glad you're part of the Indie staff and you're around for the 100th uh, uh, Indie Matters podcast. Uh, we're going to keep changing the podcast, I think. We're going to do some different things uh, going forward. Uh, we hope you'll tell your friends, your family, your enemies, wear a sandwich board uh, on the street to advertise uh, Indie Matters. And uh, thanks for joining us. All right, so we have we've cut away for a minute to talk to Megan. Megan, you are going to go on a uh, like a trip, but you are you're still you know willing to be on the 100th episode. I am. That's right. I'm going to be on a train across the country uh, when y'all are recording this. So it's very yeah. exciting. So, which bills do you think have the greatest long-term impact uh, on Nevada, and which bills were a complete waste of time? So I, I'm going to go the, the the middle route here and say that. I don't, I don't know to say a bill is a complete waste of time. You know, a lot of people put a lot of thought and effort, and one bill that seems very important to someone might not seem quite as important to someone else, especially if these are some of these industry-specific bills. Um, but I'm going to talk about something that obviously I've covered a lot. Any of our listeners know that healthcare is sort of my focus area. Um, I think there are actually a couple pieces of legislation that will have a significant impact on Nevadans in the long term. And the one I just want to highlight is, the bill that was passed on surprise emergency room billing this session. Um, it's not the end-all, be-all legislation, but it is going to make quite a few changes to the way that, you know, folks who've, you know, maybe gone through serious emergencies, accidents, um, had to be rushed to the emergency room and end up in a hospital that isn't covered by their health insurance network, it's going to make a big deal for those people. So essentially what this, um, this bill does is it takes the patients out of the middle by requiring that um, you just pay your regular in-network copay or deductible or coinsurance as if you had attended a hospital that was in your health insurance company's network. Um, and then it's basically left to the hospital and your insurance company or the doctor who treated you and your insurance company to figure out who's getting paid and how they're getting paid and how much they ought to get paid. And this is going to be a big deal for a lot of folks who, like I was saying before, have ended up in an accident and, you know, the ambulance isn't stopping to check to see, okay, who's your health insurer and who, which hospital are they contracted with? They're just trying to get you to the nearest hospital to get you the care you need to save your life. And so this, this bill really stands to make a significant impact for those people who've ended up with tens of thousands of dollars in emergency room bills. You know, we hear stories of people going bankrupt over medical bills. Uh, so this is going to make a big uh, impact for those people. Um, it's, again, like I was saying, it's not the end-all, be-all. This applies to folks that are insured. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's not, um, not going to make changes to, you know, the state's uninsured rate or issues that exist in Medicaid with Medicaid payments for, for hospitals and that, that kind of a thing. But it, it will make an impact for some of the state's population. And I think that um, will have pretty, pretty substantial impacts. 
moving forward as we see this legislation get implemented. So this next question has to do with a little bit of a controversy that happened, oh, is it like two years ago now, I think, maybe a year ago? Um, I think it was last summer. Last summer, yeah, it was a year. It was like a year ago. Yeah. So uh, the question as worded from the asker is, did Megan dislike Michelle Mortensen as much as I did after the debate? And uh, obviously a little bit of bias from the quest from the asker, but uh, what about you? Yeah, so obviously this is referring to um, there was a, a forum we did for the candidates in Nevada's third congressional district um, last year in 2018. And we did um, a panel of, of some of the candidates on the Republican side just to get their thoughts and, you know, sort of offer a different venue for folks to see what their opinions are. I mean, it's not it's, it's fairly common for uh, congressional candidates to do many forums when they're running, especially if there's a wide field, as there was at this point in time. So we hosted this event at UNLV, and it was live-streamed. Um, one of the candidates, uh, Michelle Mortensen, and I kind of got into a little bit of back and forth. I don't think dislike is the right word to use in this question in particular. Um, you know, my, my job as a journalist is to, to ask politicians and ask candidates questions, and when they're not answering those questions, to press them on it and uh, and to not let them, you know, get get away with not answering a question. So I think what you saw then was, you know, me trying to get an answer from a candidate on um, a question I had that, you know, is of, of importance to our readers and to the public at, at large. And, um, you know, as a candidate, it's obviously her, her prerogative to answer questions um, in the manner that she wishes. So I, I don't think it's a matter of like or dislike, right? It's a matter of, I think, people um, doing their jobs and just trying to get the information out to the public. Um, all right. Well, cool, Megan. Thank you for chatting with me over the phone, uh, and I hope you have a fun vacation. Uh, I was also saying earlier that I think you are by far the hardest person to decide if you should be on the Southern episode or the Northern episode because you are kind of uh, you're kind of the, the the perfect Nevadan, right? You're, you're both sides of the state. <laughs> I am. I am the all Nevadan, the one Nevada. The one true Nevadan, right Megan Messerly. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a fantastic vacation traveling around. Thanks, across so. Thanks so much, Joey. All right, cool. So we it's the 100th episode. We've, we've made it this far. <laughs> we can finally be free of our burden. The yeah. uh, ancient curse that's forced us to do 100 episodes is finally going to be lifted. So really excited to, to finish this one. Yes. So we have Riley to lift the curse here. And we've also got Daniel. What's up? Hey, how you doing? Good. And then we've got Michelle. Hi. You guys excited? <laughs> About the 100th episode? Yes. I remember when the podcast was just a twinkle in your eye, Joey. Yes, when I was a wee intern. <laughs> now you're a wee uh, multimedia editor, so congrats, yes. Joey. Technically, I'm your boss, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, I do have the title editor, right? <laughs> anyway, well, uh, so we, we asked you guys some questions on the internets through Twitter and Reddit and uh, Facebook, and we got some questions here, and we're going we're gonna to answer your questions. But yeah, I guess I'm going to start with the policy questions, kind of the... Uh, Maybe not policy, but like more like politically focused questions. And then we'll get to kind of the personal questions about where we like to eat and where, where we were born and stuff like that. But um, this first one is probably going to Michelle. Um, thoughts on the disenfranchisement of prisoners and ex-felons? So that's a great question. Basically, before this session, Nevada had a pretty difficult process to go through if you had been 
in prison on a felony and were trying to get your voting rights restored. There was technically a process for it, but there were still about 88,000 people that were basically had no voting rights because of their criminal record. So I had, um, I think it was about a year ago, I created an infographic of the way that you had to get your voting rights back. And it was really complicated. It took me pretty much the entire day to put together this flow chart of, you know, you got, is your felony in state court or is your felony in federal court? That's two different processes. How long were you in there? How serious was your felony? Is it the year 2019 yet? Because there were some new laws coming into effect. So there were just so many potential barriers. It was just a really confusing situation. I think if you were coming back from prison, I think you might as well just say, you know, this is too hard. I'm not going to do it. And I think most everybody was, was saying that. So this, uh, session, a bill was sponsored by assembly speaker, Jason Fierce. And I think it really expanded the pool of people who are going to be able to get their voting rights restored upon leaving prison. So I think we're going to see some changes. I think we're going to see the flow chart become a lot simpler these days. All right, cool. Well, one question down about, uh, I think like 20 or 30 more to go. <laughs> but what was the bill that you think has the greatest impact on Nevada this session? And what one was a complete waste of time? Thoughts, Riley? Oh, okay. You're going, you're going first. <laughs> um, the bill that had the biggest impact this session, I think it's difficult to ascertain because like it takes some time to determine like which ones had a big impact. I think the paid leave bill is pretty substantial in that like very few other states have passed a bill allowing for paid leave, most allow for paid sick leave. There's some pretty significant caveats that are built into that bill that a lot of the advocates were against, but I think that was a pretty huge uh, bill in terms of like moving towards a more worker-friendly culture. Bills that were the least effective, I mean, there's a lot of like symbolic bills, and I understand why that's important, but in terms of like effect on everyday life, those weren't necessarily the most like... Uh, you know, direct consequences on how we live our lives every day. I think about how neon is the state element every day, Riley. Oh, that was my other answer for most important bill, Joey. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Those fourth graders were the most powerful lobbying force in, in Carson City this session. Kids have a lot of uh, sway. <laughs> All right, Daniel, what about you? It's a tough one. Let's see. Most important bill. I mean, on, the, on like the topics that I was following during this session, environmental legislation, climate change legislation, there are some interesting bills around water depending on who you talk to, they would say that they're effective or ineffective and symbolic. Um, I think that is also true to some extent of the RPS bill, which is a big bill. I think that probably was one of the biggest kind of marquee pieces of environmental legislation in the session. And it does raise the state's renewable portfolio standard to 50% by 2030. In terms of the least effective bills, again, it's kind of hard to say because there are a lot of bills that aren't theoretically effective sort of resolutions expressing the opinion of the legislature and so they don't, they don't really have any effect like the you know the legislation to uh, oppose the military expansions onto public land that might limit access to public land those don't have any kind of material effect but i think they do have a symbolic effect so i'm not even sure that i answered the question at all except to say that everything is more complicated than maybe that question <laughs> <laughs> sure nothing's just black and white right Michelle, do you have a black and white answer for a very gray area question? There's a lot of bills that I think will have a big impact on people's lives. But if I had to just pick one to highlight, I think the criminal justice bill that we saw pass 
AB 236, which changes penalties for certain crimes, will have an effect because that's going to be the difference between a misdemeanor and a, a felony for someone. And a felony can have implications that are huge for someone's life and getting a job. So on an individual level, I think lives are going to be changed uh, as a result of certain things being reclassified in the state. And hopefully that'll lead to people making better choices and, and having freedom and being able to get rehabilitation as opposed to maybe straight incarceration, which is, I think, the goal of the bill. Do you have a uh, least impactful bill? So <laughs> I don't want to make people upset by calling something least effective when <laughs> it's their bill. However, I do think <laughs> that... The legislature does spend an awful lot of time on license plates. I don't understand why the youth legislature needs actual bills to change things. They do. Um, maybe I'm just being ignorant here, but some of those bills I'm wondering, you know, why do we need certain resolutions? Is that really going to do much more than send a letter to our congressional delegation? And then, you know, I think sometimes people are maybe saving face so they have a, a bill that's been just totally amended down to do nothing, and it's still gets passed. Sure. Just um, say they had a bill passed. Yeah, just to kind of, I don't know, not kill the bill. So I think we see some some of that happening. I don't want to name any specifics, but I sure. mean, symbolism is important because otherwise, how do we know how Nevada legislators feel about, you know, illegal human organ trafficking and whether or not that's a good or bad thing? Was that a resolution? Yeah, it was. I, <laughs> I remember. And they're, they're opposed for the record. Oh. They, they don't like it. <laughs> thank, thank God. <laughs> All right. Um, so the next question is, what is different about the Nevada legislature than other legislatures in other states? We'll uh, caveat this by saying that none of us have covered the legislature extensively in any other state. But Riley did read an article about the Texas legislature and can offer a little bit of insight on that. Yeah, a classic uh, indie opinion article is from Seth Rao, who used to do education policy work here and also does it in Texas. We're one of four states that has a part-time legislature, meaning we only meet um, for a short amount of time every year or two years. Texas is another one. One of the, I think, main differences is, is that there's uh, very few staff people for individual legislators. They only have one attache or yeah. one assistant, unless they're a committee secretary or something. But the accessibility and ease in which you can talk to these people is really, I think, astonishing. Like, it was really surprising for me when I first started covering it. That's definitely not the case in Texas, and I bet in many other states where they have, you know, each legislator might have five or six staff people, and they might be kind of cocooned from reporters or the public, but here you can just text your senator and the odds are they're probably going to respond because we're a part-time legislator. They all have private jobs for the most part in the interim, so it can be kind of hard in that respect. But a lot of them are sort of trying to fulfill the idea of a citizen legislature that was put in place when we became a state. That being said, I think there are there is like a pretty substantial movement to try and get us to a full-time legislature where we'd meet like 90 days in odd-numbered years and then 60 or 30 days in even-numbered years. So that would be a pretty major change um, and that would get us in line with most of the country. But yeah, I'd say it's one of the, the biggest changes. Yeah, it's, it's very, very casual. It's just kind of hanging out. People are just like walking around chatting a lot. And like legislators, legislators too are just like walking around the hallways just like, hey, how's it going? You know, I, unlike Riley and Michelle and Joey, like I was not at the building every day. Um, and in the beginning of the session, I would sort of just swoop in and be like, oh, I have an interview today with uh, Senator X. Like I'll just pop in and nobody will see me in my... <laughs> Jeans you know, and, jeans and my, a like, <laughs> my <laughs> green Levi jeans. And then I gradually realized that, no, once you walk in the building, you, uh, you probably should wear something a little nicer. 
Sure. But I think I, there is like a sense of casualness. Casualness. Yeah. I think um, that's it's more more than that than just the dress. It's like just there is like a casual. Yeah, I mean people are willing to have side conversations and kind of just mm-hmm. talk to you and say hi and Yeah. One yeah. of my favorite stories I heard this session, it was a, a Facebook post from a lobbyist Tom Clark, and he had run into like an older couple, I think, from Virginia or North Carolina, and he asked him, like, Oh hey, how's it going? Like, what are you guys doing here? And they said, Oh, we're just, you know, we're on a vacation, but we heard this was the first female legislature, so we wanted to come and see like <laughs> sitting on a floor gallery. And he's like, oh, that's cool. And he pulled, I think it was like Senator Julia Ratty aside. And he's like, hey, these are people from out of state. And she actually took him on the floor and introduced oh, wow. him cool. during a, a floor session. So that just like speaks to sort of the, it's not too highfalutin. It's sure. still pretty casual. Yeah. All right. Um, so the next question is about energy. So this will probably be for you, Riley. What deals are being made to entice people to not leave the Envy Energy monopoly? Yeah. So there was uh, legislation passed this session that like kind of puts the tamper down on the ability of companies to leave Envy Energy without like a good reason or going through a much tougher process. But the utility itself has like taken a lot of steps to stop this group of like roughly a dozen companies who filed to leave like after the 2018 election, but before the legislature and still have a lot of their applications in limbo, uh, whether or not they can depart the utility and buy electric power from another provider. They do this because it's usually like cheaper or they want to get 100% renewable or a variety of other reasons. So the um, utility, NV Energy, has taken the stance like if everyone leaves, then we're kind of screwed. Our expected like growth of electric service won't reach the levels we think it will. That means we're going to lose money. That means everyone else is going to have to pay more. So they've put in place or they've proposed a handful of programs one is called like OPPR. Um, energy people are really bad at marketing, so it's kind of hard to remember all the acronyms. But that's like a special rate that large customers could get as long as they stay with Envy Energy. There's been some pushback on that from staff of the Public Utilities Commission, the Bureau of Consumer Protection. But the utility has been like really successful in getting people to stay with them. The SANS, which literally like ran and funded to the tune of millions of dollars a ballot question to what to end their business practice, announced a deal with them that they're going to stay with Envy Energy as customers. A bunch of other casinos have done that as well. So I think they've gotten instructions where they've had somewhat of like a culture change there to try to like bring these large guys back in and not sort of. They're still the 800-pound gorilla, but they're being a friendlier 800-pound gorilla than they have in the past. Do you think the uh, failure of that ballot initiative? is one of the reasons why they've they've been successful in keeping companies from leaving. Yeah, I mean, like, had that passed, everyone would have left. Right. So it would have made it a lot <laughs> easier. But I think that really, I think, shook them. Like, I, I remember, Michelle remembers this because we covered this in 2017, but Paul Cadill, the former CEO, like, went up to the legislature and said, yep, we're ready to be a wires company. We're not going to do this anymore. And sometime between, like, there and in February or March, where they said we're going to spend $30 million bucks, and they ended up spending yeah. like, $60 million bucks, like, they just realized that like for our business to be sustainable and to continue being like what we have been in a new kind of weird energy future. I know Daniel, you've written about all the issues that distributed generation play. Um, they, they have to kind of change their, how they've acted historically. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Joey did not this definitely did not hear energy now. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> Joey, did you find that interesting? I love energy policy. It's my favorite. You look like electrical bolt sound. Like what we're talking oh, about. Oh, 100%. Thunderstorm. Uh, okay, so the next question is from a. Reddit user, and they said, uh, I recently read that Reno is the fastest warming city in the U.S. How widely is this known, and how has it affected business and policy in any way? Well, it's not only Reno, but Vegas is also one of the fastest warming cities in the U.S. I think, so I think that references to, I believe that it was a reference to a 2016 article 
that talked about Reno being the fastest warming city. And I think last year or this year, there was a report that Vegas is the fastest warming city. In any case, both metropolitan areas in Nevada are warming very quickly due to climate change and sort of the urban heat island effect. Just the amount of disturbance with concrete and stuff like that amplifies already existing warming trends. I think that the public is fairly aware of it. I mean, we had a very hot summer in Reno last year, and I think we're on track to have another pretty hot summer. So there's definitely some you know, adaptation that's going on with maybe more people looking at ACs and stuff like that when it's impacting sort of their daily lives. Um, and it's also being reported on a lot. In terms of the government's response, you know, Reno right now is working, I'm not sure if they finished it, but I wrote about it last year. They've been working on sort of a sustainability plan that's looking, it's not just looking at climate, but it's also looking at things like food systems and stuff like that um, to maybe mitigate for this warming trend that we see. Um, so I think I think it's pretty pronounced and, and well-known, and especially in Vegas. I mean, you're seeing more heat-related deaths every year. And, and so, so these trends are having everyday impacts, and I, I think people are pretty aware of them. Okay, so the next question is, why, does Nev- why doesn't Nevada have a full-time legislature? I think we kind of touched on this a little bit a minute ago, but yeah, I mean, tradition, right? <laughs> there's a, Every year there's a bill to move us to annual sessions, but it never quite puts it over the edge. Yeah, it has to be approved. Change in the Constitution. And one of the issues that arises that's kind of interesting politically is like every time they vote for us, a mailer or some ad will come out saying like, Legislator X wants to double their salary, voted for bills, and they have like a link to the the resolution to make them full-time legislators. Like obviously if they're full-time, they're going to get paid more. I mean, they barely get paid so as is. Who sends out those ads? It's like who's benefiting from not having a full-time legislator? Uh, typically like I mean, the Republican Party does just because we've had a Democratic majority legislature, but it's an attack that can go both ways. Yeah. Um, most people would say, you know, it's kind of, it's an iffy proposition to budget for two years and 120 days. Um, and the solutions we have as workarounds, like the interim finance committee, which meets in regular intervals to like approve spending, it's probably unconstitutional, <laughs> but we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, go down that, that path. But if anyone did, then like the state would really be in a a tough spot. But I think there's, there's like a lot of political considerations that go into that as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So that's like all of the like hard hitting politics questions. Now we're going to move on to more, maybe more about the indie as an organization. Um, and then we'll move on to more fun personal questions. Did anyone ask a question about Moby or Macy? No, they didn't. Our, actually. Reader, our readers are trash. Yeah. Listen, Joey, keep it in. Yeah, I am. I'm leaving it in. You're here first people. Riley thinks you people are trash. <laughs> all right. So the next one is really fun. Um, as reporters, what's life like in Carson City during the legislative session? Uh, riding a horse to work every day was kind of weird at first. <laughs> but you get used to it real quick. The 10-gallon <laughs> hat was a really strange change. We have a really good time because we, uh, the Carson team at least lives in the same house, so that's really fun. Not fun 100% of the time because we're working a lot of the time. You know, we, we cook together and we have a menu board up right now. You can't see that because it's a podcast. Can we go grocery shopping and we watch TV together and... I'm down here a lot, I feel like, too. Joey's down I see here. some tweets about The games. Bachelor. <laughs> we, Me and Megan really liked The Bachelor, and then now we're onto The Bachelorette. Unfortunately, Megan has left, and so we have to communicate Via long text. distance about our observations about the show. I can't believe John Paul Jones got kicked off. I know, it's so pick. unfair. <laughs> so what was it like kind of reporting in Carson? Like, what's the vibe of Carson City during the session? You know, it livens up. I've lived in here 
in the off season as well. And it, it kind of is much quieter when all the lobbyists and everybody goes home. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more going on, you know, comma coffee is always bustling and the Fox is always bustling. And so basically, you know, all the downtown, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people living here. The rent goes up, all that stuff. (laughs) It's a working in the legislative building is a lot like being back in like high school. Um, you have your morning classes, morning committees, afternoon classes, afternoon committees, you have like a lunch break. Um, there's a bell that tells you like when to go. Um, that's true. It is kind of like high school. I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, you see the same people every single day. It's, um, a lot of people call it like a summer camp, but I've always like, I've made a lot of connections to like, oh, this is just like I'm back in high school, even though it's been. Did you guys have fun this session? Like, would you, was it enjoyable? I think it's always enjoyable. I enjoy the session. You know, I was really excited actually to like, this is kind of like the first session that I was like actively helping out a lot. And I remember like the first like three or four months I was loving it. And then like the last two months I was like, this is going to end ever. <laughs> it's just, it, it gets to a point where you're just like, it, it, it gets really hard, but it's really fun still. I actually really enjoyed it. It did get really grueling. I think. I think maybe this session more than in the past, actually towards the end, it was late nights every single night. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was quite the rhythm that we had in the past, but I think in general, I enjoy the legislature because I feel it's very meaningful work and there's just so many policy issues that are happening in so many ways that people's lives are changing. So I feel like it's always really every story, right? I mean, is important and, and they're, they're always dealing with big issues. So it's a great opportunity to deal with all this stuff in, in a kind of a compact time frame. Uh, how do you feel having Ralston as a boss? Ralston uh, comes off a little rough around the edges on Twitter. You know, he's, he's very brash sometimes. And it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to us, he's a really great boss. And he... Uh, I think like, people, don't, cool. people don't believe me. It's people cool. don't believe that, but it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say it's really cool to work for someone who has so much institutional knowledge about so many different issues in the state. Like the other day, I was doing some research and I stumbled upon a water story that John Ralston wrote in like 1991 for the RJ that was like probably that was before uh, I was born (laughs) (laughs) honestly one of the like best water stories that I've read in a really long time so it was cool it's cool to work for someone who has that background and institutional knowledge having an editor like that is really valuable and I think somehow amazingly he's he's not burned out like there's just like a sense of like newness and like he's always so excited about everything yeah so it's just (laughs) it's refreshing to deal with someone like that because it's really easy to get cynical and burned out in this business Yeah. yeah all right Actually, this one is, I really like this question, and I guess it's not about us, but it's about where we live. But what is the difference uh, you've observed between the national pop culture perception of Reno and how it actually, like, what it actually is like? Um, I feel like I'm going to answer this question, because I, like, grew up in Reno. Um, Go for it. (laughs) So, I I mean, obviously, like, there's the Reno 911, um, the Muppets in front of Reno. I think in the last, like, 10 years, though, Reno has really come into its own. I just feel like I, I love going to Midtown and Downtown and... There's so much. I mean, going on the river walk and just there's always something going on. And I feel like that was something that I didn't notice. Maybe that's because, you know, I was in like high school or middle school and I wasn't going out as much. But I mean, seriously, as a young adult in Reno, like it's it's a great place to live. There's so much hiking to do. But then there's also like concerts to go to and like Food Truck Friday. I just I think Reno doesn't necessarily get a fair shake because like when you see people reference Reno that aren't from Reno or I've never been to Reno, it's usually like, oh, you know, gonna go get a divorce. Or I think Conan made a joke 
like last year or the year before about like there's this guy with a giant handlebar mustache and he's like, this guy looks like he just lives in Reno. <laughs> I was like, well, you see those people around, but you also see like a lot of young people that look like they want to go hiking. This I podcast think, is brought to you by the city of Reno. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm Reno. No. I'm, I'm a huge, Joey, I'm a huge Joey just got a job Reno. for the, uh, the Shivi campaign. Yeah. <laughs> but, I think that, uh, like a lot of Mountain West cities that we're seeing growing, Boise. You it know, is yeah. growing a lot. Reno. I think California's priced so many people out, and and you're seeing a lot of out migration. That's that's happening in Reno too. Just and I mean, to there's a lot of like, <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah, and that's putting a lot of pressure on the city too. Mm-hmm. I know we're supposed to. <laughs> sorry, but yeah, I'm housing. Didn't mean to interrupt. You. Prices <laughs> are up. I mean, of course, there's there's pluses and minuses to growth. I think like Reno, like. Like you said, like a lot of Mountain West cities like Boise and Missoula and and places like that are really attractive because they, you know, they offer like a really good access to public land and recreation opportunities. But, you know, at the same time, like, yeah, just sort of a different quality of life. That's pretty, pretty nice. And it is nice to be a young adult in Reno. Yeah. Um, Does Riley ever sleep? No. Next question. (laughs) Uh, do you follow any music scenes in Vegas or Reno? There is a really cool place in Reno called the Holland Project, um, and they like feature a lot of like local bands, but then they also feature like some really cool indie bands. Um, if you haven't checked it out, it's like an all ages venue, usually really cheap concerts. They put on some really good stuff. Check them out. We saw a really cool like Roots Revival guy in Reno. You might have heard of him, uh, Tim McGraw. No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's good. Check We're him really out. into the indie scene. <laughs> is he is he a country artist? Uh, you know, it's more, it's, I call it Americana. <laughs> I don't like country music. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, do you like alt country? That's a thing. I mean, no, <laughs> no. Daniel, you had Daniel's some. You I don't know. Daniels. I listen to, I mean, yeah, I would say ditto. The Holland Project's pretty cool. I like, I've been to like a bunch of shows around Tahoe, um, I Crystal like Bay. You go to a concert like all the time, man. I feel like every time I talk to you, you're at a I concert. I may or may not be going to a concert on Wednesday night. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you know, there's like a lot of good, like, I really like folk rock and like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I guess you would call them jam bands. <laughs> but yeah, so there are like a lot of good shows uh, up around Tahoe and in Reno. Right. My favorite Reno music scene is when Joey plays his guitar. <laughs> Joey's very talented at guitar. I should play f- some theme music for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> next question. Uh, what is the funniest session moment? Or your, and then there's another question that's what's your favorite session moment. So I'm just going to put them together. Funniest or favorite session moment. Mine has to be the B-Bill from Senator Pickard. It's just hilarious. I mean, I think that like when he went up. You want to explain what it is for people? Yeah, know. he wanted, he, he had a, he proposed a bill to uh, ban apiaries in the state. Apiaries are it's like, you know, beekeeping. So you can't be a beekeeper in the mm-hmm. state. In rural, in, in like the, not the rural, in like the urban areas. Um, and then during a hearing for it, I think it was like the first hearing for the bill, um, Senator uh, Melanie Scheibel asked him, uh, Senator Picker, what do you think poses a greater threat to urban environments, bees or guns? And like without skipping a beat, he just said, undoubtedly bees. And it was just, for whatever reason, like it was super funny. And then like we were making jokes about like, what about bees with guns or what about guns that shoot bees? <laughs> and so that kind of turned into like a, a meme for the rest of the session. At Third House, we we put a him like in a little bee costume and put it up on the wall. And The funniest moment was Third House. Third House was great. Third House was so great. I had such a good time. <laughs> For those that don't know, it's uh, when we get to write skits about the legislators and we get to act them out and it just feels like high school. And they, they come and watch us make fun of them. You can actually find it on YouTube. We posted it on our It's YouTube also channel. on the ledge. It's also on the legislator, legislature site, yeah. 
this is sort of very niche comedy. I think people want to hear that stuff, though, right? Um, That's what the listeners are looking for. <laughs> like, three days before the end of the session, um, the budget committees would, like, often meet until one or two in the morning with just because they had such a backlog of bills to get through. And I don't remember the bill because I didn't sleep a lot during this time period, but I just remember um, in the Senate Finance Committee, the main fiscal analysis guy's name is Mark Kompodrick, and he just looks like he's been fed up with it since like day two <laughs> he looks very grumpy and this fresh face probably like 25 or 30 year old fiscal analyst came up to talk about a bill and he said oh uh it's going to cost this this and this and there won't be a fiscal impact and then there was like some confusion among the senators um and then mark and Podrick, he has a microphone too to talk and he says um actually it's this this there is a fiscal impact and then he turns it off and i was in the committee room and he just looks at the guy and like saw me, shakes his head, no. <laughs> it's just like such a funny moment that just you don't get you don't get to see unless you're actually there. So yeah. that was a uh, you know one of the few silver linings of being in the legislative building till two a.m. Definitely worth it. I don't know that I have. I would say third house coming to a theater near you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, just a couple more questions. Uh, do you have a favorite place to eat or a favorite bar? In Nevada? Well, it's hard. I mean, I feel like I have a favorite place everywhere. I actually have a lot of favorite coffee shops. Well, let's see. In Vegas, I would say I really like Tacos El Gordo. I miss it. I want to go back there. I love living the good life. <laughs> Ever since we got kicked out of Bella Fiore, we've been um, fans of this place called Living the Good Life. It it's is a, a place, bar. not a state of mind, but it's also a state of mind. It too. is. It's a it's bar good. very close to where we live. There's dancing too, right? There's dancing. Sometimes there's live music played by John Hambrick's attache. And then there is just a, a hostess that's just like super warm and friendly to everybody who comes in. So it's just like a very accessible bar. Um, I like all the Basque restaurants in Northern Nevada. So oh. JT's in Gardnerville. And then the one they just opened up here that I can't the Martin. The Martin. The Martin. The Martin. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. Get a few pecans. Very classic Nevada experience. I really like the Martin in Winnemucca. Um, I like the one here too, but the one in Winnemucca is like the original one. It's been there for like hundreds of years. Um, I also really like Pinion Bottle Shop if you're ever in Reno. It's a good, good place to get whatever kind of beer you want. If you Joe, your favorite Pinion bar is-, is the board game bar. That's true. My Don't other favorite Joey is it. Joe, you can find Joey at the Glass Die <laughs> Monday through Friday. Don't tell people that. They'll Five pro- to eight. They'll probably actually find me. <laughs> I love the Glass Die. If you um, like board games, check it out. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, just a lot of good bars. I like Craft. Royce is good. I went to Picnic the other night. That's a nice place in the summer. Uh, and then the last one is uh, not a question, but I thought it'd be funny to say anyway. Someone said, John needs to lose the beard. I totally disagree. John would look so weird without a beard. I've never seen him without facial hair. With like, If you look at pictures of him from the 90s, he looks like he was a linebacker on the 1980 Chicago Bears. Like He just had a very different look, and he sort of, I think the beard works for his current, his current spot in life. Right. I, vote, I vote beard. All right, we all. I think I think we're all in agreement that John should keep his beard. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think that does it. What a great way to end it <laughs> with John's <laughs> facial hair. Um, but but genuinely, thank you so much. I mean, we've done a hundred episodes. I I think this wasn't something we ever thought we would get to. Um, we really appreciate you guys listening. We hope that you enjoy listening to the podcast and all of the news we have. Uh, and we hope that you enjoyed kind of a departure from that uh, for this week. If you ever have any more questions, maybe when we get to a thousand episodes, we'll answer them again. We just want to thank all of our listeners for being listeners. And we hope that you can spread the word about the Indie Matters podcast to all your friends and help us grow our listener base. Cool. Well, uh, in that case, uh, I've been Joey Lovato. I'm Michelle Rendells. I'm Daniel Rothberg. I'm Riley Snyder. And we will talk to you next week. Hey.